Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by site co-experts Lucas Johnson and Chris Klein. Welcome to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host today, Uriah Young, and our special guest, Larry Atkins. We are not able to have Chris on the podcast today, but that's okay, because Uriah is going to fill in and do a great job for Chris in his place. How are we doing tonight, guys? Great. Doing awesome. We're going to have a great pod tonight. I feel it, guys. That's awesome. That's great to hear, guys. So we have a lot of different things to talk about. But first, before we get into those topics, I'm going to hand it over to Uriah. Uriah is going to introduce Larry for us, and then we're going to get into our topics tonight. Okay. So everyone listening out there, uh, on the Six or Sense podcast, we have a special guest. It's a gentleman that I've known for quite a few years. We served on the uh, board for the Philadelphia Writers Conference. And that person is none other than Larry Atkins. So here's a little bit of background about Larry that everyone should know. Larry Atkins is a journalist, author, university professor, and a lawyer. He's written over 500 articles, op-eds, and essays for Newsweek, NCAA News, NPR, Chicago Tribune, Dallas Morning News, San Francisco Chronicle, Philadelphia Daily News, Philadelphia Enquirer, Philadelphia Magazine, and dozens of other publications. Larry's also an adjunct professor at Temple, Arcadia, and Montgomery County Community College. He's a member of the American Society of Journalists and Authors and the Authors Guild. His latest book, Skewed, A Critical Thinker's Guide to Media Bias, was released by Prometheus Books in August 2016. Man, there's so much to say about Larry. Larry, welcome to the show. How are you feeling right now, sir? Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You ready to talk some some Sixers, my man? Absolutely. All right. Let's get to it, Lucas. Yes, definitely. And before I want to get into this, I want to say, I think I got a, from Arcadia, I think I got, like, when I was looking at colleges, I think they sent me a brochure one time. That's the only connection I have with Larry outside of that. <laughs> but besides our love for the Sixers, which Larry is an avid Sixers fan, and recently, Brett Brown talked to reporters talking about a array of different topics. So we're going to cover at least three here. And we're going to talk about first about Ben's health. Prior to the break, Ben didn't look like he was going to be available for the playoffs. And throughout this hiatus from the NBA season due to coronavirus, we've been getting, you know, Ben's getting close. He's almost there. He's all but ready. But now it seems like Ben's completely ready. He's going to be playing normal minutes, the same like Matisse Leibel or Shake Milton, he's expected to play a lot of minutes. Larry, what do you think? Do you think the, that, uh, you know, do you think they should ease Ben along, or do you think uh, that if he's ready for minutes, just go ahead, throw him in? Um, it wouldn't hurt during, um, you know, like the eight games leading up to the playoffs to ease him in um, and see how it goes. I mean, he, he looked good. He looked small, as, you know, uh, Allen Iverson would say, like, pump up. <laughs> Uh, but you never know with a back injury. So I think it would be maybe a good idea to just kind of build them up with the minutes, start them a little slow, and then play a little more in a few more games, and then maybe the last couple games kind of, you know, ease up a little bit. But, I mean, he says he feels good. He, he looks good. But, uh, again, with a back injury, you never know. I love that AI reference of him <laughs> looking swole because yeah. he definitely put on some muscle which I think will definitely help him bang down low against the bigger guys. But I, I agree with Larry. I think I, I just hope that the, when the training camp starts that he can, you know, get his rhythm back, get his confidence back, 
because you know all those videos of him dunking by himself and you know shooting free throws I mean that's nice but when you get that contact from a guy that's bigger than you or your same size that's going to definitely put a test on him so we'll we'll bring him in slowly and then once the playoffs start just roll him out there and let him do his thing so yeah I kind of tend to agree with guys and Chris has said this on multiple occasions in past podcasts that we need to bring him along slowly I do want to note that we have training camp we have three scrimmage games which I definitely think we'll see low minutes there for Ben I think that the first like I think especially the first four, you know, regular seating, seating games, I think we'll probably see a slow, you know, increase of his minutes. But by the fifth or sixth game, we'll probably see where he's going to be close to playoffs, you know, in terms of minutes per game. Maybe he gets a rest against the Suns in game six uh, six, or, uh, you know, maybe one of those back-to-backs he gets a rest. But I'm expecting him to be close to full, you know, load management, you know, full load minutes minutes wise by the time game seven and eight come around. And I want to go ahead and transition our next conversation because this is a big one, and this has been a theme all season long. Brett Brown mentioned that there's kind of a team Joel and team Forford and then a combination of the two that he sees, and I think that's good that he's been focusing on this during the, the hiatus. So, I, Larry, my question to you is, what do you think team Joel and team Forford would look like, you know, in terms of the other – four guys around them as well as what the combination of both of them will look look like and what guys would maximize their strengths when they're on the floor together. Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's a good idea that they not play together. Clearly that experiment didn't really work too well. And uh, I, I think, you know, the, the key is, uh, and the, a good thing is that um, Horford seems to have accept that role now that he's willing to be kind of like a sixth man. So, I mean, the key is to just have have shooters around. Um, and so maybe you have Shake starting uh, and maybe you have Korkmaz coming off the bench with Team uh, Horford. And they do have, I guess, more depth than they had at the beginning of the year. But I think not having the pressure of playing with together with Embiid will help Horford. He's just a better player when he's filling in for Embiid. So... You know, I, I mean, I think you have interchangeable parts. I don't think you necessarily have, you know, five guys that are always going to play together with four guys that are always going to play with Joel and four guys that are always going to play with Orford. You have guys with versatile skills and they can mix and match. Just generally, I, I think it's a good idea that Orford seems to be willing to accept his role as kind of like a, a six man. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point, Larry. I just want to revisit the biggest reason why we signed him in the offseason is he was going to be a, a tremendous upgrade from what we had the previous seasons backing up Joel because he'd missed so many games and keeping him as fresh as possible throughout the season and of course each game so that being said I think Horford going to the bench and just immediately subbing in for Joel or for Joel is going to be a huge huge thing and I agree with Larry. Let's put Shake in there. He was hot before the coronavirus hit. Let's keep that momentum for him going and the confidence. And just like Larry said, if we have shooters around and we can dump the ball down to Joel and draw the double team, Horford is a great post player himself. He has some really nice post moves. So if we can have that rotation going, I think the Sixers will be successful. 
I think you guys bring up some good points, and you guys are right. They're probably going to have a, you know, constant rotation of plays around both guys. And I recently wrote an article about this, about, you know, what what would be the lineups that would maximize both players, uh, you know, in their own individual teams as well as playing together. Because I think, I think in certain situations, in certain matchups, they can play together, especially now that Horford's healthy. And he revealed that recently, uh, telling reporters that he wasn't healthy after his initial injury earlier on in the season, around late November, early December, that he hasn't been the same health-wise since then. So this break has been good for him. So I think him being healthy will help him play again with Joel when a time calls, for example, against like the Raptors or the Bucks or hoping against Lakers, you know, in the NBA finals, who knows? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but my, my point stands that I think that they can play together. And the ideal lineups that I have for each of this, for Horford, I think you take the starting lineup of Shake Milton – well, not the starting lineup. You take the lineup of Shake Milton, Alex Burks, Tob- uh, Josh Richardson, and Tobias Harris. Those three guards are great off the ball, and Harris is a great, you know, solid pick-and-roll player as well. I think all three of those guys are good in the pick-and-roll, and Horford's strength is definitely the pick-and-roll there. We'll talk more about that later. The well beat, I flip Burks out for Korkmaz because he's much more of a pure shooter, and because Embiid doesn't really run a lot of pick-and-rolls, I think Korkmaz would help him space the floor better, kind of like what J.J. did, obviously, to a lesser degree, though. And then a combination of both, I would just have Harris, Richardson, and Shake. And I know that Ben's going to be in all three of those lineups throughout the course of the game, but I just – Ben, unless he's willing to shoot, I don't see him maximizing either one of those players right now. Yeah. But, yeah. But we talk about Shake in this, and I want to talk about Shake because Brown talked about Shake in his, in his, you know, his talk with the reporters. And – He's excited, but he's nervous about Shake at the same time because he, you know, he wants. He's nervous about relying on a young player, but he knows he think he doesn't think what Shake did it towards the stoppage of break was a flash. He thinks that's something he can continue. What do you guys think? Do you think Brown should have more faith in Milton, and what should we expect from Milton once he comes back? Um, yeah, I mean, I personally have a lot of faith in Shake. I was a big fan of him at SMU's. I tweeted I thought he was like one of the steals of the draft he should have been a first round pick if he hadn't gotten hurt during his junior year at SMU Um, and I'm just a really big fan I'm really glad he got his opportunity and I saw that quote from Brett Brown and that he's nervous and that quote made me nervous uh, because it just you know I think you ought to be thinking of shake like you would think of as a first round pick the way he played at the end of the year and I know it was a small sample size but uh, that quote just made me wonder that, you know, if Shake starts out, you know, not shooting 50% and, you know, 60% from threes, that Brett's going to harp on one defensive breakdown or something like that and then give Shake's minutes to Burks or Thibault or, you know, Brokoff and, and just lose faith in Shake. And I just really hope that <coughs> And I just really hope that he sticks with them because I think there's such a big upside with Shake that, uh, you, you know, you be patient with him. Now, Larry and I, we've had plenty of conversations about the Sixers and our recent conversations involved Shake Milton, who I believe, I mean, if you think about his role right now, he is the player that Markel Fultz should have been. But that's another conversation for another time. 
Uh, I just basically think that Shake Milton is, is, is critical because so many people are leaning towards him going into the starting lineup. And if he goes in the starting lineup, that says a lot about Brett Brown's trust in him, even though we know he doesn't usually like relying on younger players. But if that small sample size is any indication of the productivity and effectiveness of him at either point or shooting guard, then the Sixers are going to probably perform up to potential in their expectation. And I've always been a shake guy. I just remember his rookie year when he got on the floor. He just didn't seem scared. He seemed like he belonged there. And that is what, just like you, Larry, said, is what kind of gives me confidence in shake. So, Uriah, I don't know if you knew this because I think you came on after I published this article, but I actually wrote a full-on article explaining how Shake Milton can be what Markel Fultz was supposed to be. Oh, okay. So, I'm yeah, check I, that out. I'll go back. Yeah, yes, definitely do. Uh, you know, he has – you know, he's a solid defender. He's not a quick-twitch athlete that Markel can be and probably not as prolific as a passer, but he checks the boxes everywhere else. And I, I followed him, uh, you know, I did rookie reports every week for, uh, for the Bluecoats uh, covering, you know, Shake Milton last season. And I was floored with the type of production that he was having. I kind of, I saw that he was special. And Chris can correct me later if he, you know, in, you know, in our group chat. But I'm pretty sure Chris had Milton as a uh, top first round pick in his big board as well. So he definitely was a steal. And, uh, you know, obviously it had to do with back injury, but. I agree that I think he can be something very good for the Sixers if Brown can trust him. And, you know, that's the big if. And I think trusting Milton will go a long way in Brown's job security moving forward. But that's another conversation for another day. Keeping on the subject of Milton, Uriah, you had something that you wanted to talk about with yeah, Milton. And absolutely. Absolutely. So Brett Brown, obviously, he had the microphone in front of him and he had to – elaborate on all of his players but when it came to Ben Simmons he was grilled by some reporters because you know they they want the controversy to kind of bubble up and one of the controversies is when Ben was out and injured with his bad back Shake came in and and did his thing so they're trying to figure out you know what is is Ben comfortable with Shake now getting all this attention and all these all the praise And my uh, question has to do with the comments that Ben made about Shake. And to basically summarize it, if you haven't heard it, it has to do with uh, Ben was basically saying that he loves playing with Shake and that he's seen Shake grow tremendously over the past two seasons. So my question, and we'll go with Larry first, uh, when it comes to Shake Milton and Ben Simmons in the starting lineup together, what's your, your take on how they fit together? Are they a good match, or is it like oil and water? Uh, I mean, I think on paper it, it can be and should be a good fit. Personally, I think Shake is better off the ball. Um, and, like, if you noted, a, a lot of his baskets, he'd be kind of standing in the corner, get a feed from uh, Horford or Tobias, and also maybe a little bit at the top of the key. When he did play with Ben, he had a lot of nice play, like a few alley-oop um, passes to Ben, and Ben just made some great catches with them. So they seem to be developing some pretty good chemistry. Shake is a natural shooter. And I think he can kind of step into that J.J. Redick role uh, in a sense. And, you know, Ben played well with J.J. And 
you know, with Ben driving, with somebody you kick out to like Shake, at least on paper, it's something that, that should work. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think they will be a good match on the floor. And Larry brought up some good points. But I also want to point out that Shake Milton as a pick and uh, as the ball handler and Ben Simmons as a roll man are both very proficient in the pick and roll. And Brown talked about seeing more pick and rolls, especially with Ben and Joel. But I think we're going to see a lot of pick and rolls with Ben and Shake too, with Shake leading the charge there. We saw it when Joel was out that Ben was really dangerous as a roll man. And I think Shake Milton can definitely unlock that because he's a good enough passer. He's not, like I said, he's not as good as what Markel was going to be, but he's a good enough passer to hit Ben on the lobs and then, you know, on the rolls. And I like that. I think that's going to be very dangerous. I think that's going to be an underrated and, you know, unexpected tool that the Sixers should use in the playoffs. And it, I think it will surprise a lot of teams because they haven't really, they're in bottom percentages and pick and roll offense this season. So I'm hoping that Brown really embraces that. And I think that could be dangerous, especially with Ben as a role. So my, uh, you know, out of the, I think six or seven articles that I've, I've had uh, posted on our site, the number one, I guess, most popular was one I wrote about Ben Simmons, not being a traditional point guard. So my take is that I think him being in the lineup is going to help the team as a whole simply because if you think about the half court offense, once that shot clock is under 10 and things are kind of falling apart, or maybe the defense is is starting to double team and turnover is just right there, you know, in front of us, if, you know, one bad mistake happens, shake is that guy that once he gets it, he can do a lot of things with it as opposed to just Ben being out there as kind of a liability on offense in the half court. There's, practically 0% chance he's going to shoot from the outside or at least get a decent shot. So if Shake goes into the starting lineup, I really see him being an asset in that half-court offense. And I do remember, Larry, a lot of those alley-oops that he had to bend. So I do like that aspect that you brought up. But for the most part, I think they will be a good fit. The one other thing before we move on uh, to Lucas when we talk about pick and rolls is uh, I just thought this would be kind of crazy because we know that the Sixers, they've done some crazy trades in the past. So would the Sixers dare trade Shake Milton in the offseason? No player is untradeable. Uh, I mean, look, Embiid, Simmons, Tobias, you know, and, but I would hate to see them trade Shake. I think he has a big upside. And just, uh, again, he's – I hope people can get over that stigma in a sense of thinking of him as a G League player or the 54th pick and think of him. Again, he really, if he hadn't gotten hurt, he probably would have been in the late teens as far as an NBA draft pick. He was having a great year at SMU. SMU was destined to be like an Elite Eight team. Then Shake got hurt. The rest of the team got hurt. SMU fell off the face of the earth. Unless you're getting proven NBA starter, um, you know, I, I would hate to see Shake go. Just like I hated seeing Landry Shamit go. You know, look, if you get really good value for him, I guess. But I, I really hope they find a way to, you know, keep him. So you bring up Landry Shamit uh, trade, Larry. And you're right. It would take very good value. But value isn't always what you get in return. It's what you can also offset. And if Horford proves that he, that injury, that, you know, his health wasn't the issue and it's, in fact, age, 
which we all kind of suspect that his game is, you know, deteriorating because of his age. The Sixers are going to look to offload that contract this season. And if worse comes to worse, they might have to, you know, pair Horford with a young player or, you know, draft pick-wise, the Sixers don't have much. But young players-wise, they do. And it might take adding, like, Matisse Thibel or Shake Milton to unload them. It's not an ideal situation for the Sixers. But if with the possible salary cap crunch that the you know NBA is going to be facing this offseason, they might not have a choice. Now, let me be clear. I don't want them to trade Shake. I think Shake should be close to where Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid should be, probably up there with Thibel, you know, Tobias Harris in terms of, you know, trade value and, you know, the fact that they shouldn't trade him. But at the end of the day, if, if Horford proves to be a negative asset during, you know, this bubble, they might have to package, you know, him with Horford to get off Horford's, you know, terrible contract. So as much as I hope that they won't, there's a slight possibility that they could. I'm, I'm on board with you guys. I, I would not want them to trade shake. And it's a good, it's a good comparison in terms of youth and having a, a good contract where you're not paying him boatloads of money. I mean, so Landry Shamit, I mean, he wasn't making a boatload of money, but he was young and he had such an upside, but in order to get Tobias Harris in return, we had to unleash him. Would it surprise me? No, because like you guys were talking about, no player is is untradeable. But I would just hate to see him go because I really think he brings a lot to the team. And and I would love to see him develop in this system and grow along Ben and Joe for the next couple of years. I think that's a fair point. But, and, you know, earlier in this segment about Shake Milton, we talked about pick and rolls. And that's what, what I kind of want to, uh, you know, go to next. Larry, in your opinion, what do you think could be the best, you know, pick and roll tandem for uh, the Sixers moving forward? Could it be Ben and Joel? Could it be Tobias and Horford? Could it be Shake and Ben? Or some other combination that I didn't mention? Well, from a pure pick and roll, not of saying who's the best player, I think it might be um, Joel and um, Burkhan because they've done it before. And Burkhan seems to like that with the screens. I didn't see a whole lot of screens for Shake. Um, he, like I said, he tended to dump the ball to Tobias once they got into the half court. Ball would move around, and eventually they would find Shake in the corner or up at the top. Generally, they didn't set a lot of um, screens for him. I, I think in theory, it would work. But I, you know, I remember Joel setting a lot. He was very good in setting the screens for JJ. Um, so I think he's good at that. I mean. They do have a lot of options. Ben said he's now willing to be the pick and roll guy. You don't get the pick and pop with Ben. He's not going to set a pick and then you give the ball and he's going to shoot, but he can drive to the basket. Um, but, you know, Warford can set a screen. Uh, so they have a lot of options with it. But as far as like, and again, I, I wouldn't put Furcon ahead of Shake or other players, but if we're talking just who the best pick and roll combo would be, I would, I would pick Joel and Furcon. I, I didn't even think of that one. And it, to me, it, it strikes me and makes sense because Furkan, he has more to his offensive game than people give him credit for. He's not mm-hmm. the fastest player. He's not the strongest. But he has that nice little teardrop type shot when he gets in the lane. And we know he can shoot from three. But, yeah, to your point about J.J., if he can be a th- more of an offensive threat and really be consistent in three-point shooting, that could be a good tandem. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, and this might not – be very popular but I have really grown 
to really like the uh, tandem of Al Horford and Tobias Harris. So the reason why is because if you look at Tobias's game, he really can score at three different levels. He's seen as more of a jump shooter, but he has a good mid-range game. And Horford, when he was with Boston, I'm sure you guys remember, it seemed like every pick and roll he had with Marcus Smart or Kyrie Irving, they would dribble around the screen and then he would float to the three-point line and they'd kick it back to him. And it seemed like he would every game shot against the Sixers. And I, if they could replicate that when we return with Tobias and Horford, I think that would be a nice, a nice addition to the uh, playbook. I'm caught off uh, guard by both of your your guys' answers, and they're not bad answers. I you know I think the underrated skills, offensive skills of Forkon outside of his three point shooting is beyond understated. But and you know, but I uh, so here here's my thoughts on this. I don't think Joel Embiid is as strong as a pick and roll player as we feel like. He, he's a good screener, but I don't think especially when he rolls, he, he can pick and pop fine, but his rolling skills, I, I'm not, from what I've seen, he, you know, it doesn't seem like he's very comfortable rolling and percentage wise, I, you know, I've looked up the stats in the past. He's not shooting great in the pick and rolls. So that's, that's something to consider. Al Horford and Tobias, both solid options. And I like Tobias as a pick and roll player, but not as the ball handler. He's okay as the ball handler, but I actually think Tobias is most dangerous as the roller. Because if you remember his time in Orlando and with the Pistons, he he was very dangerous as a role guy. And even with the Clippers, mm. he's okay. very dangerous. So I like Tobias as a role man. And my, you know, I'm going to go with Shake Milne here because I think he has so much potential. And I think him and Harris can definitely develop that. Now, I think there's a, some other combinations that I would like to see as well. You know, Uri, you remember me talking about this in the past. I love to see more Ben and Joel doing deep pick rolls in the pit. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I would remember. love seeing more of that because I saw that in the Clippers game, and I want to see more of that on a regular basis. At least I ran three to five times a game. That being said, I also want to see more of Shake and Ben, maybe some uh, Horford with any of the guards, really. I think any of the guards, even like guys like McKee Stiebel, who's very limited offensively, I think Horford can unlock all the perimeter players, uh, especially the guards off the bench, like Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson III. I like the fact that I think if you surround Horford with perimeter guys and, like you said, Harris, I think that that could be a very dangerous lineup where he can just – he can be the maestro of the offense where you have two combo guards like Shake Milton and Alec Burks. You have, have – Josh Richardson and, you know, or switch out Richardson for Robinson. It doesn't matter. And then you have Harris. I think that could be a dangerous combo. So I, I'm excited to see what can happen with that. Um, like I said, my only concern is that I'm not, I haven't seen Embiid become a really strong role play, you know, role man yet. And I want to see that progression happen soon. Maybe this next off season we'll see it, but right now the numbers show that he's not great as a role man. Okay. So, we're going to do something different this week. And uh, the goal of this is to get more people engaged on social media with the Six or Cent site and obviously the podcast. We've been doing some polls lately. We took some good images uh, and we've put them into like a little uh, grid format. And we put a big question in big font letters. The top two polls that we did this week got quite a few responses, over 40 for each. 
it's not one of those little surveys where you see the little bar and you see how many people voted. No, this is actually people engaged in, in typing the response. So we're going to do Twitter poll of the week. Poll number one, who is the better coach to replace Brett Brown if he's fired? So more specifically, there were 46 responses, six retweets. But the most popular response that got the most likes belongs to a gentleman or, or a lady. I didn't really pay attention to their uh, profile. But at West Champlin says, one, don't fire Brett. And two, Jay write me or Udoka. <laughs> Jay write me or Udoka. So it seems like they're a Brett Brown fan. So Larry, what are, what are your thoughts about that tweet? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would say if, if the Sixers don't make it to the Eastern Conference final, Brett Brown's probably going to go. At least maybe, you know, 50-50 shot if he does make it to the Eastern Conference final. To me, the, the only exciting choice would be Jay Wright. Uh, to me, there's a lot of, I guess, shall we say, uh, mediocrity. Uh, Van, Van Gundy, Thibodeau, Tyron Wu, Mike Brown. I mean, Jason Kidd, I guess, could be interesting in that maybe he could convince Ben Simmons that he needs to, you know, advance his game and shoot more. Um, but there's one name that I haven't heard mentioned that I conceivably could see being a wild card, and that would be Bill Self uh, from Kansas. And the Kansas, I mean, he's won a national championship. Kansas is facing NCAA allegations. Maybe Bill Self would be looking for an out. Um, you know, he wouldn't be able to teach, uh, have another college job. And so, can, you know, he is a good coach. I mean, it would be sort of be like a Larry Brown situation where good coach, NCAA violations. I mean, that's, again, Joe, Jay Wright is the no-brainer choice, but I don't know if you'd have to throw a lot of money at him to get him to leave Villanova. So those are my thoughts. So a couple things here. I think that you're right, Larry, in the fact that he only has a 50-50 shot of keeping his job if he gets to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think NBA appearance in the NBA Finals keep, it allows him to definitely keep his job. doesn't matter what happens there as long as he gets there. In terms of uh, replacements, I actually wrote an article about six possible replacements. And uh, why I think Tyrone Liu would probably be the popular choice and go-to choice. My personal favorite and Dark Horse would be in more Dark Horse. He, If he was in a Dark Horse, he'd probably be fake. But he's more of a Dark Horse would be Sam Cassell. Sam Cassell, accomplished player, won three championships as a player, accomplished point guard, underrated point guard of the 20, 2000s and late 90s, in my opinion. Um, was an assistant for, you know, Randy Whitman, Flip Saunders, and more recently, Doc Rivers. You know, he, he has a great basketball mind. I really like him as a candidate. I think he would be the best choice. Um, I don't think Jay Wright's leaving Villanova. Uh, Bill Self is an interesting uh, candidate that you brought up that I hadn't thought about before. Um, but uh, Yudoka, I don't think Yudoka is going to be around long enough. I think he's either going to take – most likely he's going to get the Chicago job. Um but we'll see. I mean, he's also a candidate for the Knicks job. So, I, But I don't think he's going to be around long enough to be a candidate for Brett's job if it becomes available. So just to give a little more perspective, I forgot to mention that in the actual post, the three images, the three coaches that we gave as options were Thibodeau, Mark Jackson, and uh, who's the other person? Let me see. Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd. 
And interestingly enough, uh, Sam Cancel was he, Sam Cancel was mentioned, Lucas. So you got someone on board with you. Quite a few Jay Wright people. Then I saw some other interesting ones. Someone said Jerry Stackhouse. <laughs> someone said uh, Rod Strickland and Mike Brown. But uh, I have to say, for Larry, that was an interesting pull you had there because I never thought of Bill Self. I mean, the fact that he's been such a successful coach at Kansas for a while. And then I'm sure you guys know this, maybe he could be the one to connect with Joel because he coached Joel his freshman year. So that's an interesting pick. I do like Jay Wright. It's just something about that guy. I think he, he's a proven winner. He would command respect uh, the moment he walks in the locker room and he's always down at the Wells Fargo center. So it's like home to him. But I do agree with you, Lucas, that it would take a lot to, to lure him away because he is the king of the castle at Villanova. We all know that on the main line. But, uh, and I don't really have an opinion of Udoka, but I definitely like Jay Wright. So moving on to Twitter poll number two, this poll had to do with who would you rather have back on the team? And the images that we displayed and the options were Markel Fultz, Jimmy Butler, and Robert Covington. This was the second most popular response Twitter poll. And it had 45 responses, four retweets. And the person responsible that got the most popular response was at Penn State 24-7. So this is all shout out to you. Uh, this person uh, tweeted to our response. He said, people really saying Rocco over Jimmy? WTF. <laughs> so what do you guys think about that? Rocco over Jimmy? I mean, is, this, is Penn State 24-7? Do they have a point or... Are we Rocco fans in here? Uh, not a Rocco fan compared to <laughs> like Jimmy Butler. I mean, I I don't see how anybody could say anyone besides Jimmy Butler. Um, I mean, yeah, granted, maybe chemistry didn't work and egos didn't work and didn't work with the coach. But if we're talking about simply as a player, yeah, I mean, there's nobody. I mean, shoot, I'd put like Ilyasova ahead of some of the other guys that you mentioned, even though he's kind of on the downside of his career just as a role player. But, um, yeah, I mean, it has to be Jimmy Butler. So I'm curious, Larry, why you, you're not, a, why you're not feeling Rocco, but as a, as a, as a player, but I'm going to get into these points here first. Well, actually, before I get into those points, Larry, do you not like Rocco as a, as a Sixers player or was you just don't prefer her back over? I mean, if I thought it was like, who would you most rather have back? I thought that was the question. And I don't see how you would choose Rocco over Jimmy Butler. I mean, Rocco was, was okay. You know, very good defensive player, three and D, but if you're comparing him to Jimmy Butler, I just don't see any comparison. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. I, I wasn't completely sure what you meant by that, so I just want some clarification. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about each one of these players real quick. Markel needed to go, and it's not it, – obviously the PR situation was terrible with the, with the shoulder injury and the shooting and all that, but it was, you know, I think his fit with Ben wasn't going to work – Ben and Joel wasn't going to work purely because Markel – needed to grow as a player and he wasn't going to be able to do that in the role that Brett Brown had him as, which was basically a spot up shooter, you know, secondary playmaker. He needed to be the primary playmaker, which he's now in Orlando and he's showing real flashes in Orlando. I don't think him being in Sixers uniform works for him or for the core of Ben and Joel. Rocco, 
Larry, you've already said he was a great 3 and D player. Fits a need that the Sixers have right now, but overall, I mean, he's not the best player on this list. As you said, it was definitely Jimmy Butler. And it wasn't just – I mean, obviously his shot creation and playmaking were a big part of that. But I also appreciate the fact that he took the team by the reins and just led them. And he literally almost beat Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors, who were the eventual champions. And I think it's fair to say that the Sixers had a good shot of beating the Bucks in the next round. And assuming that the things happened to the Warriors that did happen, they could have beat the Warriors in the finals as well. So they could have very well been champions. And I think now running back with Butler in particular, I mean, people will say J.J. Redick was a huge loss, and I'm not denying that, but Butler's leadership and his, you know, his ability to create his own shot has very much been missed in Sixers, you know, lineup. And even though Shake Milne can kind of fill that role as a shot creator, he's not nearly as proficient as Butler was. Yeah, I, I mean, Rocco, he just tore me up on the inside he was the streakiest shooter I think I've seen in a long time yeah he had quick hands but you know why why should you have to use quick hands if you're staying in front of your man you know he's always slapping the ball and he hits the player and it goes out of bounds plus he totally disappeared in that playoff series against Boston a few years ago so it's a no-brainer question I think um, Jimmy Butler was the man and to be honest guys I mean, Joel's my favorite player in the NBA. I have to say Jimmy was my second favorite player. Even before he got to the Sixers, I was a big Jimmy Butler fan because he has that – he just has that killer instinct and that leadership capability that a lot of players don't have. As far as Markel, I got to agree with you 100%. Lucas, he was not going to develop here. It was such a toxic situation and just so many – issues inside the locker room outside the locker room for a kid who probably should have stayed another year or two at Washington but that's neither here nor there because he's down in Orlando and he's with the magic now moving right along uh, the next question has to do with something that was mentioned recently I think we touched on it last week or the week before and it was about bad chemistry and it was something that was admitted by Tobias Harris a lot of people, national pundits, they just they keep harping on it. Sixers, they can't get it together. Their rotations, they don't fit. So the question has to do with who is responsible for this bad chemistry from the first part of the season. Do we put it on the coach, Brett Brown, or do you guys think that it falls on the players? Um, I mean, I would put it on the coach primarily. Uh, I mean, in, in his defense, there were injuries and you, it was rare to have players playing together at the same time. And really, you could say that throughout Brett Brown's tenure, that guys would get hurt and guys were coming in and out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that he's never really had his full lineup healthy, you know, either Joel's hurt or other injuries and things like that. But ultimately, you know, chemistry, I, th- I think, does go to the coach. So I'm going to take this a step further. And it's not – I mean, both parties need to take responsible, the players and the coach, but it's actually on Elton Brand because Elton Brand put this team together this summer. And I think we all kind of thought, well, Al Horford should be able to fit with Joel. No, it's not going to happen, especially with Ben not shooting. If we should have known better, we didn't know better, and now we know better. And I've 
written in the past that all the Sixers' woes are on Elton Brand's poor team construction. And he constructed this team like a you know mid two thousands team, and that's not going to win you the NBA title. Now, maybe this team can make noise in the playoffs. Like they all said that they said this team is built for the playoffs. But I put this on Elton Brand Brown, as you said, Larry. He hasn't had a solid rotation or solid roster basically ever in his tenure here. And while you know people love Brett Brown and the players love Brett Brown for the most part, except for Jimmy Butler, um, you know you. You look at it, and I, you know, constant change of you know players and stuff that can't be on. Brett Brown, I think, has done the best he can. Obviously, he's not perfect. I don't. I think some of this stuff can. I think you could have taken Al Horford out of the starting lineup much sooner. Um, but as you said, injuries were part of that, and uh, you know, it's also on the players. And I think one of the players that needs to take big responsibility for that is Ben's refusal to take jump shots. If Ben was taking jump shots, I think the spacing issues would be a lot less, even if he wasn't making them at a high clip. So I think that's a thing to consider as well. But I put this all on brand, not because he needs to know his personnel on how they work together and who would maximize their skill sets versus minimize. And putting Horford into that without, you know, with two, you know, high usage players in Ben and Joel already and Horford's a high usage center that needs the ball to, you know, maximize his skill sets. I think it was foolish to think that they they would be a smooth fit, uh, fit to get. So as as much as I love you brother, Lucas, I have to disagree with you completely and I have to align my response with Larry. And let me spell it out for you. So Larry Brown, uh, not not Larry Brown, sorry, Brett Brown. <laughs> Uh, Brett Brown's been here so long and he's been through so much. It's hard not to, to want him to succeed just because of what he had to endure. On top of that, he's had such a hodgepodge of, of rotations and players coming in and out, being drafted, being traded. That's tough to deal with. But I do like the culture that he has brought the ringing of the bell after each win. I think that's cool. And I just love listening to him talk. He just has a cool accent. but. Anyway, so the point is, I can't give Brett Brown any, any more of a way out because when you're a head coach in the NBA and you've made the playoffs two seasons in a row with 50-plus wins, you are a leader of men. And if you cannot convince an NBA star to shoot a jump shot, especially when you have a relationship with his father, Ben Simmons' father, something's not clicking there. So in my mind, he failed at that. At this point, it's not working. But the one thing I know Larry is going to want to, like when I say this, when it comes to Jimmy Butler, you know, his expression in life, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. When Jimmy came to this team, he, everyone knew that it was going to be Jimmy's team. Even though Ben and Joe were here first, they all knew who the leader was in that locker room, and it was Jimmy Butler. And had Brown devised an approach toward this volatile player. Yes, he wasn't. He's, he's kind of a cancer, according to people. But he's a solid player and people respect him. If he would have found a way, a la, let's say, Phil Jackson, you know, maybe break out some yoga, I don't know, he could have reached Butler and he could still be here today. And, and from the reports that I read, uh, it was Brown that is the reason why Jimmy didn't want to come back. So that's my take. I put it on Brown. Of course, we could say the players, but I'm going to say Brett Brown in this case. 
Well, let me let me chime in there real quick. And mm-hmm. Butler in Butler's interview on JJ Reddick's podcast, Butler said the reason why he didn't resign was because he heard somebody in the organization ask Brett Brown if he could control him. The fact that that question was asked was the reason why he was gone because he doesn't feel like he needs to be controlled. Hmm. So whoever asked that, if it was Elton Brand or ownership or somebody else in the front office, that was the reason why he left. It wasn't on Brown. I mean, he didn't like Brown, and probably if he stayed, Brown probably wouldn't have coached this year, the Sixers. But my my point still stands that I think that Brown wasn't the reason why. He was a catalyst, but he wasn't the reason that Butler didn't stay. And while, you know, you bring up – I'm not giving Brown a complete pass by saying it's on brand, but at the same time, I don't think you can blame the roster construction on Brown, especially not this season where he wasn't. Because I don't think many coaches would be able to do much with, you know, two all, all, all-star caliber centers on their roster trying to play them together at the same time. I want to go ahead and move on. We do have one more subject here before we uh, finish up. We're going to talk about, you know, viewership of the NBA games versus all other sports. So, Larry, will the NBA be able to compete with for viewership if games air at if their games air at the same time as the NHL, M- MLB, and NFL, which appear to be the case? Do you think the NBA will be shut out, or do you think they'll be able to thrive? Um, I'm not too worried about the NHL and MLB because the NBA playoffs always compete against them and always do well. Uh, the NFL could be a problem, and I'm, I would think maybe the NBA would want to avoid playing games on Sunday afternoons um, and maybe try to stack a lot of games on Tuesdays, thir- Wednesdays, and Thursdays, uh, at least at the beginning, maybe on Fridays, I guess, too. Uh, you also have to compete against in Saturdays with college football. But the only sport I'd be concerned about as far as NBA viewership was, would be going against NFL games on Sundays. That, that's, that would be tough. The other sports, you know, the NBA typically outdraws the NHL as far as ratings. And, uh, you know, also with baseball, it's going to be the regular season. While in NBA, you have playoffs. So I think there would be naturally more interest in a playoff series and again like I said my main concern would be competing against the NFL on Sundays I, I would agree with that I think the NFL is still king in this country globally we know that the NBA just reaches far far more countries than the other leagues in the United States I do think that when it comes to it's going to be interesting because the way that things are, are, are panning out, if they, all these leagues have a season, it's all the, te- all the leagues going to be playing at the same time. And, yeah, you're right, Sunday is typically football day. But remember, NFL also has Monday night football, and they have Thursday night football. And then when it comes to NHL and MLB, you're going to have a lot of – options and I would love to say that the majority of sports fans in our country are NBA fans diehard NBA guys but there are some people that would much rather watch baseball or even hockey so I'm I'm a little concerned if it is the playoffs I would agree with Larry that you know if you're going to watch a playoff game or a baseball game um, people are going to tune in and watch Giannis versus LeBron but NFL I would stay away from Sundays if they can if they can do that but I'm a little concerned. 
just just a tad bit. So for me, uh, I think I saw somewhere recently that the NBA is the second biggest sport in the, uh, America behind football. So those other two sports don't really concern me. I think moving forward, the NBA season is going to start in the beginning of December now, I think, for this next season, which I think might be a, you know, a permanent fix because if you look at it, they're only going to be they're only going to compete with football for maybe a month, you know, two or maybe max basically two months. So I think that would be a good thing moving forward. But looking at this season, I think you're right. You brought a good point about Monday night football and Thursday night football. But I think overall the NBA, uh, they're going to have games during the daytime too. And I think that's going to be something different that fans are going to have to get accustomed to. But overall, I think that the NBA is going to be fine except with, you know, football college sports is going to be interesting. You know, how, you know, if they're going to even have a season because of coronavirus, that that's going to be interesting because I know players are testing positive for football teams. And so I think that's something interesting there. Uh, and then, you know, what are, what are we going to do with March Madness? Cause that's going to be in the mid part of the NBA season. So that's going to be interesting, but overall, I think the NBA is going to be fine for this year. Moving next year, we'll be I think that's going to be really interesting how they're going to do that moving forward. Well, I think we, we've wrapped up everything, guys, and we've crossed our T's and dotted our I's. I just want to take a quick hot minute to thank Larry for coming on and lending us his opinion and his voice about Sixers hoops. And uh, in the future, Larry, if you're interested, we'd love to have you back on. How do you feel about that? Oh, that'd be great. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely would love to have you back, Larry. Great insight. Very much appreciate you taking time out of your day to come listen to us and talk with us. So we very much appreciate it. Hopefully next time Chris will be back on and then all four of us can get talking. And I think that would be great too. Sounds good. All right. So listen, guys, uh, these are crazy times. Lucas, Chris, and I, we need you to know that we really appreciate you tuning in to the Six or Sense podcast. You could have spent the last hour doing anything else, but you chose to hang with us. We appreciate it. Uh, We encourage you, stay optimistic out here, even when it seems like there's not much to be optimistic about. Please take a second to subscribe to the pod so you can stay locked in our weekly discussions about the Sixers. We look forward to some more Hoops Talk next week. Until then, take care, guys. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.